0: Salam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by The Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host Salim Qasim and this week I'm being rushed to my introduction because the very rude um, team members of the Muslim Vibe team and other associated people in the office are not happy about the fact that I'm recording this for whatever reason. So I'm going to keep it brief. Um, I'm joined this week by William Barilo who is a London based researcher in sociology. Um, he looks at how young mus- Muslims in Europe and North America navigate race, class and gender barriers from a decolonial and restorative perspective. Res- Did I say that right? Yeah. Um, that's just reading off his website. Um, William is a uh, an individual who has uh, contributed to the Muslim vibe in the past. He's made a series of videos for us. Um, I'm going to put the link in the description. We talk about them a little bit at the beginning. Um, we also talk in the podcast about white privilege and the current academic project that he's working on, um, which kind of looks at uh, reverse engineering what the British establishment has done uh, to Muslims um, and how people are able to and have successfully kind of fought back and and carved the space for themselves. Um, It's quite a wide ranging discussion um, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, Without further ado, because of the rude people in the office who are not allowing me to speak too much on this, Assalam, please, man. Um, here is my conversation with uh, William. Salam, William. salam. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for, for, for joining me on this uh, podcast. Um, so I guess some people may be familiar with your face um, that are watching this because we've done, or you produced a series of, of kind of mini documentaries for us um, around some random topics. I'm trying to think back to how it all came together. So... I think you got in touch with us maybe a couple of years ago um and and you had at the time I think we had shared one of your videos which was around um it was like th- this robot version of the of the muslim influencer
1: oh yeah that was uh yeah well k- okay so
0: ago. for people that haven't seen that because I think it's it's hard to actually dig up that video I struggled to find it when I looked for it last uh
1: what was that so basically it was an experiment in the sense that, um, you know, uh, if I can put things this way, uh, as a sociologist, which is my job, uh, my job is to understand why do people do certain things. Mm. And, um, it's basically like being a psychologist, but for crowds, for movements, for trends. But at the same time, when I started my, my, my studies, I, as a Muslim academic, There was something like for me of like a religious duty because, you know, for example, if I talk about a topic, uh, it's between 15,000 and 20,000 words, a chapter of my book or like any article. But not everyone has the time to read this and necessarily understand all the jargon and and stuff. So I, I consider, you know, knowledge as an amana that my knowledge is not halal. It's not valid until it's shared. And you know so how my question for the start was, how do I make it these topics complex topics accessible for most people mm-hmm. and then I got inspired by uh like you know these like a g plus uh videos um and I thought, yeah, let's try to do some videos uh, in, in a similar way, a very short format with uh, like culture, popular culture references and stuff. But also did some fictions and the video you mentioned actually was one of these experiments yeah. where basically um, it's a, it's a dystopian fiction where I imagine like what if all these influencers that we see on Instagram or YouTube there were actually robots designed by Google, Facebook uh, for Muslims to abide by like the government guidelines, yeah, so that was the and see like how people would respond to such a narrative. so in this video actually I play like a scientist and uh, yeah and a friend of ours like plays like a robot, He actually stands still like for three minutes, and we use like a, you know Google, the voice from Google Translate to for, for the speech and and stuff
0: it, it was. I feel like when that video came out, it, it definitely started a lot of conversations. Um, I'm sure it ruffled a few feathers, but it also got people thinking and people talking, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure was your kind of aim um, behind that in some sense. And then you've also, um, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably try and put a link to all the, the different videos that we discussed in this in the, in the description, but there was also a uh, series um, that we did on the Muslim vibe. Um, and within that we so 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 we sat down and we kind of mapped out different conversation topics that we wanted to discuss so things like politics um white privilege ai was actually another one um and just looking at my notes here masculinity um and and what was that journey like because again i the, the kind of brief that i guess we gave to you was that we want to have pieces on this and we want conversations to be had around this but we don't want it to be kind of light we want to go in quite deep and obviously with your kind of academic background as well we want to really be able to get the heart get to the heart of these conversations um and and i think we kind of did that so like the the i remember the the white privilege episode there was yourself and um two or three other white muslims that you had that interviewed that had, that were all converts i believe as well yeah, yeah and they were kind of unpacking and exploring and discussing their own relative privilege um and whatever else and, and it's interesting because there was, there was varied feedback that we got. One person was asking, for example, why there was only white people on the documentary or on, on, the, on the mini documentary that we had produced. Um, and I guess, yeah, what was that whole journey like? Like what, uh, off, the, off the different mini documentaries that we did, There's one on marriage as well.
1: Um, what was your kind of favorite to record and research and, and film? I think, you know, all of these topics were very important for me because all of these topics, they were more or less part of my own journey. Not only, it's not only topics I research uh, in, in, at university, but it's also topics that are impacting on my personal life, the yeah. life of my friends, and so on, and, and so on. And, you know, uh, especially when it comes to things like, uh, like Me Too movements or Black Lives Matter, the problem uh, I felt was, that lots of men and lots of white Muslims, you know, when like people express like the, you, ha- you have these like global movements, so people feel attacked per- and they take it personally. Mm. And the thing is, as a, as a man and as a white Muslim, I understand where it comes from. And my job is basically to tell people, because I have been within the community for a certain number of years, I've read, I listened to people and I reflected also on myself, on my position and my role to play in in this global context. So my duty is basically saying to people, look, it's not about you personally. If people, uh, they started Me Too or Black Lives Matter, there are very specific reasons. Mm. And my job is to explain from A to Z, yeah, why is it happening? And I think, you know, lots of it, lots of it comes from my own personal journey because I didn't know anything about, uh, for example, uh, like women's or black people trauma and uh, how like colonialism, how patriarchy, um, and stuff have affected people through generations, through centuries. Uh, so I had to, to, to try to not only learn a theory, a theory is not enough. And I think, you know, my own journey uh, in that sense was really, I mean, I, I open, I open in the sense that even if like, I'm a white male Muslim, I did a hard time. I had a hard time being Muslim mm. in the sense that first back it was now like now 12 years ago my family didn't accept my faith then later on i got married and during this marriage where i was married to someone to a wonderful person who was doing her five prayers wearing the hijab she was fasting on mondays and thursdays doing tahajud every single night it was an abusive marriage it was emotional it was verbal it was physical so like, how do you, are you supposed when you embraced Islam a few years ago, how do you, are you supposed to comprehend that someone who follows the faith that much can like hurt you that mm-hmm. much? Then like, we moved to the UK, my wife left me, I was already experiencing a severe depression and suicidal thoughts. But then what happened in Britain is I got rejected from the wider Muslim community for marriage and for jobs. And I got rejected for reasons I still like, I cannot comprehend. I got rejected because I was told I have the wrong parents. My parents are Polish. I was rejected because I was told I have the wrong passport, because I'm a French citizen. I was told that I'm not rich. I was told that I'm the wrong kind of doctor, because apparently it's GP or nothing. Like even like a PhD in physics from Cambridge, Oxford. No, it doesn't count. I got rejected because people thought like me doing my five prayers and having a bed was too much. Even if I don't have like the Sunnah standard, you know, like even that, that was too much for people. And yeah. And, uh, you know, like we know, like, as I say, people who embrace Islam, that our faith shouldn't be contingent on people, but just like figure out the contrast. We are sold this idea that the Ummah is this kind of magical thing where everyone supports each other. And year after year I had to experience all this abuse, all this rejection. So how are you supposed to to un- understand like what's happening? Mm. And you know, like it, it's been hard so like even if now I like I'm married and I have a job, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, uh you know, I still haven't fully recovered. And I'm not even sure that one day I'll be able to fully recover. But one thing is that I could have very easily, it would have been very easy for me to end up really bitter and resentful like towards women, towards uh, the wider Muslim community. But I think reflecting on my journey, like two things really saved me. The first thing is, of course, Islam, because I embrace Islam not because of people, because of signs on which I cannot turn my back on, and also because we have this, like, framework, this philosophy that tells us that the purpose, the hardships, they serve a purpose in life. But I think what really saved me um, was to understand how did that happen. And I think, you know, when you uh, experience trauma, when you experience injustice, the greatest thing that someone can make you understand that it's not your fault. And I think sociology helped me to understand that, no, If I had these experiences, it was not my fault. It's because people, they have their own issues. They have their their own unresolved trauma from childhood or else their own bad experiences. And also, and I think this has become like my, not my war on my jihad, but like my my focus, that we, all of us have embraced even unknowingly, parts of this dominant society that tells us to oppress others. All of us, we have embraced parts of racism, we have absorbed parts of this abusive masculinity, we have absorbed parts of capitalism and neoliberalism, you know, parts of this culture that tells us that, as Muslims, if you want to be happy, if you want to be free from racism and Islamophobia, then forgo your religion. Consider Islam as your affection statement, don't be too religious, don't be too political, don't make waves make money your god make whiteness your god and everything's gonna be fine but it's, it, it's an illusion
0: can i um so firstly i i actually had no clue about the the context and the background uh, your, your personal background that you mentioned I'm, I'm genuinely very um shocked and sorry to hear that you had to go through hey that's that. fine that's fine. um but it's it's I've I've lost my train of thought for a second. Hold on. Um, yeah, no. It, I think with regards to um, everything you're discussing, um, coming to the faith and being rejected on, as you say, multiple levels, and having the the issues that you also faced as well. Uh, what are your thoughts on on the notion of whiteness? Because we, we you know we, we obviously started by talking about white privilege and the documentary we did there. Um, and you spoke about Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement which are um, arguably neither of them is is your fight so to speak as a white man and also mm-hmm. as a man in the Me Too movement um, it's 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 technically not kind of yours but I've often heard people talking about the fact that they feel that when they become Muslim they lose their white privilege or they lose their whiteness um, and, and similar to kind of what you're describing right there is obviously there are levels to this right and and we can't, and you know, so, you know, I've got the, the, I've started to co-host the I'm Not Your Bilal podcast with uh, Nabil Abdul Rashid, And on there, we talk extensively about um, the experience of black Muslims and, and the, the the struggle that exists in our community and, and the oppression that the, com- that the black community face. Um, but you've kind of painted for me a very different picture to how I perceive often the the white revert experience, because amongst reverts, white reverts are commonly seen as the the uh the most respected and revered i mean you're a handsome blue eyed man blue ish
1: right i think so look
0: looks it um yeah. but like you know the, the the perception would be that like okay this guy is he, he's 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 the model revert um but the reality is that you've obviously faced uh levels of 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 rejection from the community from externally and and everywhere else. What's your perception on, I guess, your own whiteness?
1: So, you know, I think the challenge for uh, like white Muslims and like, even like myself, what I went through is to understand that when people speak about whiteness, it's about a system, it's not about white people. It's very important to differentiate these kind of things. Whiteness is what has fueled colonialism is what ha- it is basically, in my research, I call, you know, the, the white civilizational project. In the sense that every things that we have around us, whether it is in culture and politics, education, it serves this purpose uh, for like advancing the white civilizational project, which basically says very simply that if you're not white, you're not human, you're, you're nobody. That's like putting it very, very simply. And as white people, of course when you embrace Islam, you like you are not equal to let's say a white English middle class man who has grown up in the south of England, of course. You have like lots of uh, working class uh, white people who embrace Islam who really struggle a lot. And if you look at those who are put in positions of power, it's always those who are the most privileged, who either have like a, a famous relatives, who have a decent amount of network, amount of influential people in these kind of things, which we, they're basically, just after the Shahada, they're like given this title ambassador of, of Islam. Yeah. You know, so that, that's a problem. But for me, you know, it was understanding that the era we live in of course, the colonization of land has ended some time ago, but what has remained is the colonization of minds. There is this researcher, uh, Hussein Bulhan, a psychologist uh, in Somaliland. He has coined this concept called metacolonialism. In the sense that what I just said, you know we, we have absorbed uh, parts of, of, this, of this dominant culture and we end up oppressing our brothers and sisters. We have been colonized even without knowing it and i'll give you an example of how it happened to me you know when i was seeing all the men like the women i wanted to marry they, w- they would go for or all the men who had hired uh instead of me for all these charities i looked at them and you know deeply i had this narrative that i'm ba- i'm a bad muslim because of who i am and i need to look like them to behave like them i need to shave my beard i need to stop my uh, praying my prayers I need to get a white BMW on PCP, even if I hate BMWs because they're so unreliable, but I'm taking a tangent. I had to yeah, basically- I know, I know you love your cars. I, 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 I needed to <laughs> forego my religion, change my appearance. Even I was you know, thinking, should I start again from scratch my studies and become a banker?
0: Yeah.
1: And basically this is metacolonialism. I wanted to sacrifice my ethics, my values, my identity, my faith, just to fit in
0: so, so coming back to what you said a little while ago you said that um sociology helped you to, to kind of um survive almost right mm. um by that do you mean the fact that understanding and seeing societal trends and the fact that i i, I think i think for, for for most people in fact right you you know you know statistics you know herd mentality you know the basics right but I think a lot of the times in my own life that actually I feel like I'm an exception, but actually you end up realizing you're not an exception. You know, we have that mentality. So even when you talk about, you know, colonized minds, for example, as much as on a rational um, intellectual level, we might appreciate that notion internally we still may have that internalized. And that's the thing, I think, even with, with the, the conversations that are happening now in communities um, in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and you know, I think now a lot of people are having these conversations. The difficulty is not in, in saying I'm not racist, but it's in feeling how, how you feel. So, for example, when you see a black man walking down the street, do you feel threatened? Do you feel more, like, uh, uh, uneasy because he's a black man? All that kind of stuff. And... It, it, so what was it for you, I guess, that um, th- that that sociology did um, in in allowing you to to not, I guess, fall into that trap of despair? Because it's a very interesting to say that science uh, liberated you. Um, so yeah, c- do, do you mind expanding a
1: little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't think sociology by itself was the only reason. Uh, it you know, it's just like. Uh, someone who helps you uh, to, 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 to understand like, what's going on behind yeah. the scenes. Uh, why do people do that in a certain sense? I'm really tempted of doing this very easy analogy of the red pill, which has been so much misappropriated <laughs> through time. But you put I mean, it in, your,
0: in, in a few of your videos as well, haven't you? <laughs> of I'm course, sure you have. Yeah,
1: that's a cheeky move, of course. Um, <laughs> everyone gets it, basically. Yeah, everyone gets it. That's the main thing um so yeah but uh, i was just saying you know theory is one thing but even you know i know people uh even like academics who are like 20 years older than me they have studied all the stuff about uh race gender and and, and stuff and they still don't get it and um I don't don't know, you know, it's it's not like a solution for everything, but it depends, I think, how do you approach sociology, maybe also knowing like where uh, all these concepts they come from, because of course, like not, you don't, you cannot absorb everything in the sense that not everything that is produced by sociology, is necessarily uh, in line with like Islamic ethics or, or values or frameworks or mm. just like, you know, analyze because lots of have been have analyzed and conceptualized through white men specifically. So what about, for example, yeah, like, uh, adapting this concept for like non-white people or, or women? I mean, it has its own challenges, but I think, you know, it's uh, when we talk about Me Too and Black Lives Matter, why do these topics, unfortunately, can uh like spark like hostile reactions i think it has to do with emotional intelligence yeah. i don't know if uh should i expand on this topic uh, if you think there's or, merit in it then
0: it, yeah the stage is yours okay.
1: so you know, the thing is when i started my research in my, in my study so uh as i said i, I cannot like just hold the knowledge for, for myself because ultimately you know as a muslim I want to see a community we can be proud of. And a community we can be proud of is a community which is strong at supporting the most vulnerable of its members, this is in my opinion. But the problem is our society doesn't educate us, Uh, our parents do not train us to cultivate emotional intelligence. Which means that when people express pain, because you know, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, It's people expressing their pain, their -hmm. their, their trauma. But, you know, when you you don't know how to... And sometimes, you know, it's just like in marriage. When your spouse has a bad day and is in pain, you cannot expect your spouse to be, like, gentle and polite and, like, like, worded, things like, oh, you know, I had such a bad day, I feel so much anger inside of me. That's completely utopist. But what your spouse expects, I mean, this is my experience, you know... You just need need someone to be there, to sit with you and to tell you that, look, I hear you, I believe you, and I'm here for you. And this is basically as a community, when people heard, this is what they expect. But because, you know, we haven't been able, trying to hold this space for people's pain, where just people take it personally. And they hate. They they end up like hating on women, hating on on black people. I mean, the, the stuff like I see online for my research is just like a, a absurd, mm-hmm. in the sense you know, people saying that yeah, or, or like uh, our black brothers and sisters are basically uh, they are performing, they are seeking attention. Mm-mm. But I mean, I just want to say to people, please read. We have like so much literature and evidence about like what has been happening for centuries, and still we have people saying that th- th- these guys are just You, you know what's
0: what, what's what's really interesting is that th- there's this weird fascination I feel with invalidating people's lived experiences, and 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 there was one thing that like I remember um, I, I was having a conversation. So I'm involved with my kind of local mosque and madrasa um, from like an organizational perspective. And and I had a friend of mine who um, was basically from the Somali community. And I come from like a predominantly East African, uh, Asian background, a bunch of brown people, basically. And um, I, I had him, we, we had a three way call and I was with, talking, from someone else, talking with someone else from the leadership team. And, and I asked my friend to just recount his experience of going to the madrasa as a kid. And, and he said something that from that call, it was like we spoke for about an hour, but this one like particular thing that he said really stuck with me. He said, he goes, look, I can't because the guy was like asking, him, OK, so what happened to you at the madrasa? Like, what did people say? What were the teachers? What was it? He goes, look, I can't tell you what I can't tell you what happened, but he goes, I can tell you the feeling I the feeling has remained. And, and that, for me, was so striking that, you know, all these years later, and you know how it is, like, when you think of, of a good or a bad time or memory or whatever it is, like, you remember, mm. you remember where you were, you remember, you know, what was going on. Like, I, I think back, I know it's very trivial, but I'm a Liverpool fan. When Liverpool won the Champions League in 2005, I, I remember what I ate at halftime. I remember who was in the room. Like, I, I can see that because it was such a vivid uh, memory and and such a, like such a positive emotion for me and same with negative emotions right I remember the 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 the, the you know the most traumatic I say experience in my life you can remember from uh, start to finish and and it's it, I find it unbelievable that people are willing to just brush aside um, other people's things and, and as you say it, it brush it off as performative. Mm. Um, yeah, sorry, so, sorry to interrupt you, but I, it, it, that just kind of came to my mind yeah, because yeah. I, I think it's, it's, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's really crazy I, I, the way that society is going. But anyway, sorry, back, back to you.
1: Yeah, you know, so just I was, I was talking in a relationship, like, a, like a, in a married couple, and I think you know, if we say that, like, like we, we, we are all brothers and sisters, yeah, like we need to, like, actually be faithful to what does it mean, like. We don't need like to, to uh, be being being against, but you know the problem is now uh, in our society we just have forgotten. I think that uh, as human beings, not even as Muslims, mm. we are supposed to be Khalifa, we, caliphs. Like we are, we are literally given all the people, all the things around us for us to take care of them, because like everyone from, from comes from God. And in the same way, you know what I find. Um, Really sad is that not only like people are just like are ready to antagonize, but it's like you know the biggest strength of the Prophet ﷺ was his ability to turn his greatest enemies into the greatest supporters of Islam, just like Abu Sufyan and some others. But it's like our society has completely forgotten the concept of Abu Sufyan. You are either with us or with uh, against us. Mm. And we have to be very honest. So this kind of mentality can, like, is very toxic. It's either you can find it in some like activist spaces, like all of these people what we, we call like uh, social justice warriors, but at the same time in like very conservative spaces, like the art bros, like, people are falling into their own traps, and we end up in this like paradoxical situation where, by denying women a voice we end up burying the very daughters that islam came to save from an early grave by denying a hearing to our black brothers and sisters we are putting back on them the chains of jahiliya it's just like you know if i can do a star wars reference i will be one cannot be saying to anakin skywalker you have become the very thing you swore to destroy and actually you know like talking about fiction I think there is a really powerful parallel you can make uh, between Star Wars and the UMA nowadays, in the sense that, if you remember the story of Anakin Skywalker, there is a very solid fan theory online, which says that Anakin Skywalker could have been prevented from being Darth Vader, if and only if the Jedi Oma was there to support him. Because look, he, the poor guy, he was grieving the loss of his mom. He was fearing the death of his wife, but nobody was here to just to listen to him and support him. So what happened? Who was the uh, who offered him a deal? Dark side of the force, prevent in a in a way, if we can make a parallel. <laughs> but yeah, it's just I believe you know all these people who become very antagonistic. They I want to believe you know as brothers and sisters, like we are just as a community we need like a stronger like brotherhood and sisterhood. Like we need mentoring. Spaces where, like, we uh, are able to meet people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, but also younger people and elder people. And this is something in, because, again, individualization of society, this is something which is lacking. So
0: I, I have to say at this point, William, I, I, I like and respect you, which is why I allowed the Star Wars reference to go on that long. But I, number one, know nothing about Star Wars and i I don't appreciate it starting' it's, no, it's fine, but completely over my head, I'm sure someone out there listened to that and knew what the hell you were saying um but i uh, yeah um you you mentioned prevent there, and I think you know that the reason um that we wanted to have this conversation today was actually uh to do with your your research project that you're working on right now um i'm I, it's like basically. The way that you put it to me before we started recording was that you're looking at reverse engineering what the British establishment has done to the Muslim community. Um, That in itself, I think a lot of people will ask the first question is, what have they done? Um, But then also, um, I, I wanted to be able to kind of split the time between talking about that and the more positive and the initiatives, as you put it, that have hacked the system. Um, in various different areas so you talked about the arts mental health history and heritage environment and community organizing i don't know if we'll be able to go into that much depth into everything and i appreciate that this is a three-year project that has taken your life and we're trying to discuss it on like the remaining half an hour of this podcast Um, but maybe maybe we can come back and do this again but i think just initially um what are your I, i i mean what's what have you found so, Actually, yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, I'm, I'm going to change the question there slightly. Yeah. So w- when you talk about reverse engineering, what the British establishment has done to the Muslim community, what do you perceive that the establishment has done um, and and what impact has it had on the community? And also, if you have any thoughts on... Um, I, I would potentially put them as like house Muslims, um, to borrow a term from, from the African-American struggle... Um, but yeah, th- those, those three um, for now and then I'll, I'll probably interrupt you at some point. Yeah.
1: So first of all, I think the, the basic thing that if we observe what's happening around us uh, in terms of what the British establishment has done to us, but not only, you know, it happens in the US, it happens in France, in the rest of Europe. Basically, like uh, people have brought the communities, if we can talk uh, uh, of the Muslim community as a whole, to a state of deprivation. In the sense that we are now, uh, uh, we collectively are craving for financial stability, for representation in media and politics, for visibility. And because we are so desperate, we are willing to accept any deal that is offered to us. And, you know, it's just, I was following, for example, the conversation be, between Saima Aslam from the Bradford Literary Festival and Tahaima Amazon Khan on the Guardian. And uh, Saima Aslam said something very powerful. She said, having principles is not something everyone can afford. So it tells you, like, the level of resi- resignation some people have come to. Wow. And, and I understand because I have friends, for example, they're on, they're, they're only, uh, their only source of income is, for example, Instagram. And uh, like they, if they're single parents and you have Nike offering you 3,000 pounds a month for becoming an ambassador, how can you say no to that? Even knowing the fact that they have like really unfair work practices. If you have a small Muslim school and the council offers you 50,000 pounds to collaborate with the prevent officer. How can you say no to that? So these are the dilemmas we are actually facing the community because if you look at the same time, uh, who can offer us like funding if we want to do something around art, spirituality or like a social thing? Mm-hmm. Apart from prevent, mm-hmm. like organi- like initiatives are very are very small. You only have maybe like one or two, like for example, resourcing racial justice, uh, which is a grassroots in- initiative. Yeah. But apart from this, no. And at the same time, we have people in the community who give like ten thousand pounds of zakat. We have people in the community who have bought a Rolls Royce, a hundred thousand pounds cash. And I mean, fair enough, people give to charity, to orphans abroad, but why is there no will to reinvest this money in the community? Do you know how many PhDs we can fund with 100,000 pounds? You can fund like five PhD students with that. And this is the, the, the level we, we, we have arrived at. And the problem is, you know, like because the community is so like divided, so you have people who have obviously tried to mingle and try to take advantage of our state of divisions and our inequalities, and this is where the Prevent strategy comes into play, uh-huh. because the thing is also they have like the prevention strategy has much more evolved since 9/11 and 7/7. In the sense that back in the old days, it was very antagonistic. It was like old players like you know Henry Jackson Society, Native Informants, like the Quilliam Foundation, and they would just like, label people. Extremists, terrorists, extremists don't do business with them, they're terrorists and so on and so on. But they have realized year after year that, yeah, it's not really working. We need to find something else. And now in the era of social media, what was very, very interesting is that counter-extremism think tanks have started collaborating with uh, the tech companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter. You even have like a counter-extremism think tank, they gained access to Facebook Messenger. To, to prevent extremism. Meaning that they could uh, not only intercept our conversations, but they could intervene in real time if they, they thought there was a threat. So it raises lots of questions about surveillance, data collection, data privacy.
0: Okay, so, so I, I feel like I, to, to, to offer a bit of a counterbalance or, or a counter-narrative, often the, the, the thing that is said is that, okay, look, whilst the majority of the Muslim community are not a threat, there are individuals in the Muslim community that are vulnerable to being tapped up by ISIS. Shamima Begum is currently quite a big news story, for example. Great example of someone who's been groomed and taken over there. So what's wrong? If me and you are chatting on Facebook Messenger, I'm just, I'm just catching up with you, we're chatting about whatever. So what if someone's reading that? Like, so what if our privacy is being invaded? Like, there is a potential threat because I might, for example, the TMV might be a front for God knows what. And you might be a, 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 well, you are a revert who is potentially vulnerable because blah, blah, blah. So like, th- they have to protect us.
1: No? Yeah, this is their narrative. But The problem it poses is uh, when you ask the question, where is the red line? From when are you considered like a good Muslim and when you start becoming a bad Muslim? in the eyes of counter extremism strategies. And if you look at the literature, so there is like documents which have been uh, uh, like written by the US government back in the days, you know, like in the early tw- uh, 2000s, about like very precisely and openly saying, like who is a good Muslim, who is a bad Muslim, with whom the government should deal with and whom they should avoid. Where did you say this was from? In the
0: uk or US? The, us the us it was
1: engineered by the us but like now even like in in mainland europe like people have adopted the same guidelines because you know like all the research comes from uh the same same places and in, in these documents it was clearly said that a good muslim were those who were like not too political not too religious who were uh, like invested in business who had positions of influence and um and yeah, just you know the classic narrative: don't make waves, make money. That that basically that's like in a nutshell, like what a, a good Muslim is according to, to these documents. So
0: I I think it begs the question then around because um, I think social media for me is is the place that people are going to be inspired to look at their role models and follow people and whatever else. The kinds of individuals who are potentially pacifying muslims from within the community serving as materialistic role models business entrepreneurs um, but lack the 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 moral ethical stuff um what do you make of them like do you think that these individuals have been duped by the system or that they are somehow a part of like a wider network of let's pacify muslims
1: you know, when it comes to individuals, it's, it's very hard because the system has become so pervasive and subtle, it's very, very hard even to, to, to detect when, like, uh, yeah, I'm getting in a government trap. For example, you know, you heard of scandals of, for example, Umasonic. So, this is a case of what is called astroturfing. So, when the government engineers, like, initiatives that pretend to be from the community, Bar, but are in fact uh, like controlled by the government to serve a specific narrative, in, the, in, the, in, in that case, a counter-extremism narrative. And now you have programs, for example, projects like you know, YouTube Creators for Change. Yeah. So this is counter-extremism funded. There's a think tank pouring money in, into it. And, uh, and basically, yeah, as you said, the, the idea is to let's like, hand pick uh, and carefully select who we want to be a Muslim role model to show other Muslims, this is how you should speak, this is how you should behave, this is how you should look. But I'm not even sure, you know, people who get involved in these schemes, they, they are aware because we are in an in a, in a era where we don't have time. We don't even have time to just sit and reflect like, and, and, and like wait the consequences of what am I doing and do the proper research because like things are becoming less and less transparent, unfortunately. So, yeah, this is, uh, it's just like very, very hard because at the same time, you know, they know they're preying on a community which is vulnerable. Mm. So when you, you see like they like in some, for example, Muslim elitist organizations, they promise you uh, like jobs, they promise you visibility, they promise you to mingle with people in the government with like wealthy businessmen and, and, and stuff. Yeah, you, you've, my thing, yeah, it comes from a good intention and it might be innocent, but you don't know, like, the partnerships they, they, they have with these counter-extremism, uh, like, funds, and uh, where, where it can lead. So it's just, like, it's very, very hard to decipher.
0: What, what, what do you think is the, the root of why we fall for this? Um, and what I mean by that is, like, I, like I've, I've spoken to someone, for example, who's involved with an organization um, that takes government funding for projects and whatever else. And, and and we were having, we were having a similar kind of conversation. He was obviously saying, oh, you know, his argument came down to similar to what the Bradford Literary Festival um, response was. He was like saying to me that, oh, you know, when you have staff to pay, and you have overheads, sometimes and you want to keep the, the lights on, sometimes you have to take jobs or you have to do things that you don't necessarily want to or don't feel comfortable with. And I'm just thinking, well, then don't hire so many people. You know what I mean? Don't have such a big office or whatever it might be, metaphorically speaking. Um, and for me, like I feel like there's, there's that side of things where people are, are willfully, in my opinion, turning a blind eye to the, the moral issues with what they're doing. Um, but then you also have people who are like, like, the Bradford Literary Festival was a great example where people signed up to it, not knowing and not appreciating um, the background and, and whatever they saw as being problematic. So Hema is an example of someone that when she did see it, she spoke up and, and she withdrew her support and withdrew her attendance. And I think many other people did off the back of that as well. Um, but that created like this whole kind of thing. But then you still had um, influential Muslims turning up to the event and showing their support and, and being a part of it. Um, and it becomes very difficult because there's also like t- talk of virtue signaling and everything else and i think yeah you know for for the majority of of muslims we just want to like walk around and not have to like character reference and check every single person in every organization you just want to assume the best right but i personally feel that a lot of people and i know people I, i've met a guy um who, who in fact even works to prevent um, and this is so'm I'm, I'm personally very anti the prevent agenda in all shapes and sizes and forms of it and whatever else but I remember meeting this guy and like having a, a, a conversation with him and I asked him, I'm like listen do, do you like hand on heart 100% believe that what you're doing is is right for the Muslim community and that you're you're helping the Muslim community and in fact at the, at the, the, the same uh, the same weekend I met somebody who, uh in america um was also working i can't remember his homeland security or whatever it was and and he was basically telling me that like for him the guy in america he was saying that he was able to essentially do la- damage limitation so if it was just a bunch of non-muslims in the room trying to enforce this then it's going to be chaos and they will clamp down on us like we've never seen before and i mean look at places like france as an example with the burqa and everything else and you know the general anti-muslim sentiment that's pervasive throughout europe pretty much right um i think we 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 have it bad here but it's it's a lot worse in in, in other parts of of the world i believe anyway um but what he was um what, what they were both saying essentially is that you know we feel that without our presence without our involvement this would be ten times worse. Do you think that's a justified stance?
1: No, because we have historical examples that, unfortunately, this like uh, damage-limiting uh, stance doesn't work. So like, what, okay. So what does work? What's what's the response? So according to what I've seen, because I followed people who uh, like have de- decided to stand like uh, their own ground and their own values. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, we need. It's very difficult, but we need to have the, like, build back the confidence. It's because like, our self-esteem is so low that we are ready to accept these deals. Uh, and like, a lot of it comes from our, our need for validation. But when you seek validation, as, uh, uh, like I spoke in, the, in the, like our videos, you basically give power to someone else. And people have tried, you know, like uh, just, for example, academics like Sadek Hamid and Tahir Abbas to contribute to like government review of Prevent. It doesn't work because unless you have the, 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 the same narrative than them, you won't be accepted. But what I mean by like confidence is, you know, it's something rooted in our spirituality in the sense of uh, the notion of Tawakul. Trusting Allah that it's gonna be okay if you stand your ground, and I have one of my favorite examples is a friend of mine. So her name is Farah Azam. She's a, like an entrepreneur, and a, she does like henna designs, and a, she's a single mother. She once was offered a commission by a very famous alcohol brand to do designs on alcohol bottles for like several thousands of pounds. So again, like, how can you say no to that? And she could have said, yeah, you know, I'm just doing, I'm not like selling it. I'm just doing the design on the bottle. It could have been fine. It's fine for some people. But she started firm. She said, no, I'm not gonna even contribute to, to this. And a few days later, subhanAllah, she was offered even a better deal from a more famous company in a completely halal way. So you have these kind of stories and like, even if we look back to history, you know, it always pays to to, to stand your ground. But the problem is we have not been raised with the confidence of of like saying, yeah, we don't have the the consciousness of we have a power in saying no. Like this is maybe at the moment, maybe our our, our greatest force. And in my work, uh, I look at organizations and initiatives which are not necessarily popular. Mm. You may never hear of them in the media, but they still do their work because they believe it's important.
0: Can, can I just, before we, because I, I do want to talk about the organizations yeah. and, and come to that, but the, the example of Farah that you mentioned, uh, that's like, I, it's really good to hear that, that she basically did that and whatever else. But I, I think from my own experience, is that you don't always get that magic phone call two days later, but there's a certain power in respecting yourself and your own principles and morals and saying, no, that in itself is the reward. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause I, I, I fear that someone's going to hear this and be like, okay, I'm going to turn down this gig. And then they will be like sitting by their phone waiting two weeks for like this magic phone call that might not come. But I, I think in itself, just having principles and being able to stand by them. It's interesting. Like again, it comes, comes back to what was said earlier about like, you know, principles are not something that everyone can afford. Um, and there's this notion, and it's when we talk about tawakul. I I I don't think tawakul is necessarily like God's gonna fix everything. It's just that for me, it's the fact that God is there, God is watching, God is listening, God is observing, God knows what's happening, and obviously has His kind of invisible hand guiding whatever's happening in your life. And like I've found that you know even difficult experiences that we all face um they 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 form a part of you right and and they're they're so um instrumental sometimes in like what happens what you become in the future that you think you it's difficult at the time but like 10 years 20 years down the line you might be like thank god that happened because actually i learned so much and and also again if you don't have that awakening at one point i I think tawakul for me is knowing that had xyz not happened who knows what what god was protecting you and saving you from right but that's that's the kind of tawakul. But anyways, you, you were talking about, and I think it's probably a good time to move on to, um, the initiatives that are hacking the system. So obviously I was kind of throwing a few uh, counter responses to you, which are entirely not my own, just to be clear. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm on side with pretty much a lot of what you've said. Um, but who, who and what and how can we then, I guess, fight against the system? Because I think there's this, um as you say there's this need and desire for approval that we have and i've seen like people working within the media sphere as well for example that it's like working at a reputable and a large media house organization whatever being a token muslim or a token ethnic person but feeling validated because like you know i mean they they were asked their opinion on on a video that was going to feature the other you know whatever it might be um but how how can we be resilient? Like how and, and what are the examples that that, that you have of, of of people, individuals, organizations that have maintained resilience, and and I essentially not given in because you mentioned like the YouTube uh, change change makers, makers for change. I can't remember what they called huh? the the YouTube. Um, As creators for change. Creators for change. That's it. Um, and and like, what frustrates me often is that. Many of the role models that we have in the Muslim community that are either artificially created or have risen to prominence or fame one way or another, a lot of them, unfortunately, are for very superficial things. Um, so, you know, we have, and like we, we just did a podcast a couple of weeks ago and we we're talking about influencers. And I think, like, you know, uh, gaining influence um, by taking a bunch of selfies and looking really attractive. Um, whether you're a man or a woman, and growing a following that way, um, especially if it lacks substance and depth, is is just it's frustrating because I feel like that's taking up potential elsewhere, right? But um, the role models or, or, or the prominent individuals that we have, you you would struggle to name many that are politically uh, on point and, and are really able to deliver a message and to influence an audience. And I look at someone like Sohema. So is a f- fantastically talented poet. Um, you know, she's very much involved in various different activist fields and, and, and uh, organising different activities and whatever else. But I, I feel like while she has an audience, it's still not the size of, of audience that, that, that her message deserves. And maybe because it's not attractive to a kind of passive Muslim. Maybe that's why. That like a lot of people just want to live life be culturally Muslim, not really enjoy the, I, I say enjoy, but not really uh, endure the social justice element. I think that comes and is a big part of our faith. Um, but yeah, so, so, so tell me more about, um, specifically I think in, in the kind of arts, mental health, history and heritage, environment, and community organizing.
1: Can I just bounce quickly on what you just said Please before? Because you know, also the thing is not always to fit in, it's also you just to you know, stop the pain. Because mm-hmm. for me, for example, it would be so easier instead of having to do freelance on, on the side uh, to just accept like, a job for a counter extremism think tank, 60K a year, 30 plus days of annual leave, sorted. I would be so happy. It would have been so easy for I'd me. I'd be so happy for you. <laughs> but yeah, but the thing is, you know, like, also if you happen to be in positions of power, how can you be political? We have seen lots of examples, you know, influencers, celebrities, when they start talking about issues. For example, you know, we have the uh, like school case study, Amina Khan, L'Oreal, Palestine, or even uh, Mesut Ozil, when he like, spoke about the Uyghurs, they got backlash. So how can you even be, you know, it's like discipline and punish, literally. And at the same time, um, yeah, they know that our fear is their power. Because they know that, yeah, if we make waves, like we are so like in a precarious situation that we, yeah, we cannot afford to do this. But how, so
0: so I think Ozil was a great example. How can, and how how can we thrive and survive? And and as you say, like for some people, it's just about turning off the pain, right? Like there there are arguably other Muslim footballers out there who might be passionate about Palestine or the Uyghurs or whatever, but fear, Speaking out because they might lose their endorsements and their platform and whatever, and and arguably what they've what they've worked their whole career to build to provide for their families and 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 you know leave a legacy behind. How can how can we have like like essentially we can't succeed in this life um, materially? I don't mean like in a financial sense, but we can't succeed in our field if we are true to ourselves.
1: It's very difficult, but it's possible. I can name you some names who are uh, people who actually ha- are in positions of power and I think I really respect. Uh, like, for example, Asim Qureshin Cage, uh, Zahra Sultana, or um, uh, Shahzad Yunas from Mozmach. They were approached by one like very famous uh, elitist organization, Muslim organization founded by counter extremism. They said no. And they, you know, they know that saying no to them is closing so many doors, but they said no. And I respect them so much for this. This is, you know, like what Suhaima, she, she said one in one of her posts, we need to get out of this scarcity mindset. And she means that, you know, we, all of us, uh, to some extent, we hold even a little bit of power. But the greatest, you know, power corrupts. And the way it corrupts is by making us believe that we don't have any. This is why we're seeking more, mm. like more numbers, more money, more power, more visibility. But, you know, even in a position like uh, uh, like myself for example i just need to think the little i have of let's say financial stability or platform this is what i did in my videos how can i just like pass the mic if i have a platform like who are the experts i want to hear talking about these things people like fozia Ahmed, Said mustafa ali Juman Amun, and so on, who have not only the theoretical experience but the community experience And this is just so important. If you have even a little bit of privilege, a little bit of wealth of knowledge, share it. It's just like the Zakat. We have an Amana, it has to benefit every one of us, even if it's very, very small. And you know, so back to the organizations that I really, really appreciate and which are the focus of my work. It's people like, for example, if we think of Heritage, Abdul Malik Taylor, for 10 years, he's been guiding people around London, showing uh, traces of Muslim heritage. Sadia Ahmed from uh, Everyday Muslim Project. Again, like more, for more than 10 years, he has been building the first and only Muslim archive about what all the elder generations they did and how they built this country, literally. It is like, and no university is going to fund this. There, there are people like, for example, if we talk about Arts, uh, Hassan Vavda, he organized the very first Eid uh, celebration at Tate Britain, or Abbas Zahidi, the first Juma prayer in Tate Modern, like disrupting these institutional art spaces. Is, like, no one wants to like talk about this because yeah, it's just like not popular, or like people, uh, let's, if we talk about environment or healing. Uh, Rabia Mali, uh, Pearls of Islam, and the Herbal Blessing Clinic, or their new initiative, uh, the um, Black Muslim Women Healing Collective. You know, these are very small, very informal I- initiatives. It's all about, like, you know, spirituality, environment, uh, and stuff, but it's just not trendy. Mm. Because people, again, scarcity mindset, we think of the short term, we don't think of the long term. We want like instant results and don't think that like our growth our healing our resilience is going to take literally years to build and yeah this, this is you know the and, but these are people you know even if they don't have much funding much visibility, they still keep on doing their work hmm. no matter what people think
0: and I've always found there's like a a, a really fascinating resilience um like uh, is it Abdul Malik?
1: Abdul Malik Taylor. Abdul yeah. Abdul
0: Malik Taylor. I I I randomly bumped into him. I didn't know him. I'd never. I, we had we had exchanged emails like years before this, but I, a few years back, I was in a Chicken Cottage in in Holborn. Uh, if if anyone from Chicken Cottage in Holborn is listening, we appreciate free chicken wings. <laughs> <laughs> Both myself and William are are fully down for business um, anytime. So yeah, so I, I was sat there. And and if, if anyone's been to the chicken cottage in Holborn, it's like there aren't individual tables, it's like rows of tables and you, yeah, you're yeah. sat next to random people. And I don't know how, like I was sat opposite him, I was on my way back from work and I was tired and whatever.
1: Was he wearing his hat? I can't, re- or not?
0: I can't remember to be <laughs> the red one then. I can't remember, but like we got talking and, and I, I I told him, oh, yeah, I'm involved with a project called The Muslim Vibe. And he's like, oh, I run this thing. And then we realized that actually we had exchanged emails like well before mm-hmm. that about God knows mm-hmm. what. Um, but but ever since then, like I always see him at random events and random places. And, and like, the, 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 I, I don't know why we never have ice cream vans in our area, but they decide to come out today. It's a, it's a hot day today, to be fair. But um, yes, yeah, so, uh, there's a certain resilience amongst um a few people that I've seen in the community, um, that you'll see every now and again at events, and and you'll you'll see their names mentioned online. So like Arsam Karachi is a great example. We had him on the podcast a while ago, and until and this day, there are a few podcast episodes that I get constant, uh, well, I, I get recurring messages about from random people, like in my own network. Six months will pass between, and then all of a sudden someone will message me like, "Oh, I just listened to this podcast. It was amazing." Arsam's one is an example of that. Because he approached um, activism from a perspective of um, God, God-centricity almost, which is something very novel and, and different for a lot of people. And, and like his book, have you read his book, A Virtue of Disobedience? Yeah, yeah. So, so in that book, I was, I was quite surprised almost to see that he was so able and willing to approach social justice and activism from a religious lens and perspective quoting the Quran, talking about examples of the prophets. Because there's forever been, I think, a disconnect in a lot of people's eyes with regards to um, activism and mosque. And he talks about it in the book as well, right? Um, And for people that are listening to this, I definitely encourage, number one, reading the book, but also, you know, if you want to taste and listen to the podcast that I did, I have to shout out, obviously it's my podcast. Um, But but the podcast that I did with Asim uh, was was actually a, a really fascinating and amazing conversation I, I loved it was amazing because when you read the book you feel like you're talking to him and then when you're talking to him about the book it's like the matrix is crazy um inception matrix i don't know one of them but um yeah th- th- there's th- there's an interesting aura and i i feel like that there is a growing uh movement of people that are are willing and able to kind of not comply but then it, it, for me, like when you said just now that it's, it's going to take time, like our healing and our, our, uh, the process is going to take years. And, and, and I think, and I, I forget this sometimes cause I want everything to be fixed now. I'm a utopian kind of guy, but then I realize that actually it's, it's going to be a long, long journey. Um, and, and like, even with the Muslim vibe, I see it as providing a space, but it's, we're only at the beginning. Like, I I can only imagine what, what platforms like this are going to be like in 20 years' time. I think there's going to be a lot more sophistication and a lot more buy-in from the community. You mentioned earlier about the fact that people are not willing... You know, there are people who have um, extensive car libraries, pretty much, not just one Rolls-Royce, but often several. Um, but when it comes to reinvesting into projects, and like the, I think the wrist test is another example. I don't know if you've, if you've spoken to them and, and looked into them, but we had, we had Shaf on, on the podcast a while back from the RIS test. And I, even a project like that shook up, I think, a lot in the industry. And they're now involved with um, various kind of, I think I don't know if they're on a BAFTA committee. There they, they was something that, that they, they recently got involved with. But just, like for me, the underlying sentiment is resilience. Um, but we lack, what do you think we lack? Why, why are we not resilient?
1: It's. I mean, there's two things. Yeah, there's resilience, you know, the ability of putting things in perspective. Mm. And when you fall, then you stand up. But there's also, you know, the, the matter of like, concern, who are we concerned about? And, you know, understandably, because we are like under the fire from so many sides, like not only outside of the community, but inside the community, I think I understand why people, they are after their own gain. But if you look at all these like small initiatives that I, I mentioned, these guys who keep doing the same thing and the same thing, even if it's not successful, even there's there's like almost no one coming, they still do it. Because it all started by a concern about those immediately around them. What can they do with the little they can do for, for those uh, something they really like, they feel concerned about, and for the people who are in their immediate pro- proximity. And like it's often, you know, like... When you think of your own children, uh, of uh, like your your friends, you know, like it, it comes it comes from there. And uh, and again, you know, focusing on on, on this, like it, it, you cannot, you know, it's like a, a fuel you can never like, extinguish. Mm-hmm. When you have like the, the 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 reason why you're doing this is in front of your eyes every single day. Uh, It's very, very different. And I guess this is like a lot of why like the the, the motivation comes from. And also like, you know, it's like people who are very, very spiritual. And also uh, I think it helps. Um, I wanted to mention something like uh, you mentioned resilience. I mentioned this. Um, I wanted to say something. I
0: have a blank. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, you warned me. You warned me that this is going to happen, and it did. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Um,
0: I, I can I can ramble for like three minutes
1: yeah, while I'm, you try and yeah, figure like out short term and long. Yes. Yes. Okay, yes I found. Uh, yeah. Talking about spirituality, you know, I often like also find hope in how Islam started in the in the Hijaz. It started very small. Prophet Muhammad He started with the pool people who were enslaved, and the message didn't even go public for three years after the first revelation of the cave episode. And, you know, it took at least a decade for Muslims to be uh, at least um, uh, uh, to be in a position of like they have built enough momentum, they could actually negotiate with the Quraysh and return to Makkah. So, like, you know, things start small. There is this, uh, I think there's a French person, I don't remember the name because I don't remember the names of French people, but he said, like, big revolutions start often in small rooms. And I think this this is the, the philosophy. You know, even we can, like, draw analogies with investing. You know, now this era is literally this uh, I can make you rich in five easy steps mentality. But if you look, like, People who actually invest and become rich by investing, like, it's not overnight. It's going to take maybe 10, maybe 20 more years before they're in a position where they can like generate, like invest and have like a side income just because of the investment. It's the same thing. And this is the trap we're falling in. But it's hard. We have to recognize that it's hard when you struggle for money, when you, you, when you struggle, you of course, like, you absolutely want a quick fix. You know, you have, in psychology, it's called, like, a, like a tunnel effect. That you are so, you have such a, like, big uh, mental overload because of your struggles that you cannot think on the long term. It's, again, you know, it's it's important to understand, like, why are we trapped? And that there's, like mechanism explaining all, all of that and the key is first of all be able to name all these things all these obstacles all these challenges because we cannot defeat what we, we, we cannot what we name. know yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And, that's really
0: i i, I like that It's really interesting i i think reflecting on my own um experience with this stuff i i feel like it's very difficult, and maybe I probably haven't fully done the exercise of like identifying all of the different um, obstacles that we face, if we can call them obstacles. Um, and and I guess yeah, only once you've done that can you begin to tackle one by one. And and I look at that not even from like a societal, but even like an if, if we talk about God and getting closer to God, we have to do like a like a full body service. Um, I know you like your cards, so uh, I can try and talk about MOTs and stuff. I don't know, um, but you know, you know, we need to we need to test ourselves from top to bottom, and like almost identify w- what the what the problem checklist is, and then we can start to work on them one by one, right? Whereas if we just try and say, all right, I want to get here, but actually the vehicle, which is your yourself, is not fine tuned. Is that a car analogy? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, okay, it's not it's not polished. Um, enough enough to get you there we're going to struggle right um so you know i i think that's that's really interesting look i i'm I'm conscious of time um we've we've, we've just gone over the kind of hour mark um i i'm sure there's more we can discuss and i think we should probably sit down for a part two once you've finished writing Um, when the book will be out when the book's out and 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 i know that you're also going to be doing more stuff and writing articles that are going to be uh, targeted towards lay people like myself um, and maybe we can pick up some of the conversations that come out from that because I think this stuff is really important for me especially I, I feel like so, there are certain portions of the Muslim community that um, either through ignorance, negligence deciding to turn a blind eye or just being so caught up in everything else don't necessarily look at and see the wider implications of what's happening and what the prevent agenda is doing for example and what uh muslim individuals who willingly engage with the establishment what that kind of leads to and and i guess the state of things for muslims um and even i don't fully know the extent of it but i feel like yourself as someone who's researched and studied and like this is pretty much what you've been working on for the last few years it's important that uh if, if if you give it to us that we have access to you and, and the wealth of knowledge and as you said like you know you want to be able to share what you have so i think let's definitely look and do, do this again um and, and expand further is there anything else you want to say any burning points you want to make you can compliment me on my car analogy earlier if you want
1: yeah we could talk like uh about cars no worries about i, this, I don't want to talk about uh... cars I'm, say, I'm,
0: I'm so good i have a french car by the way i know you said you don't like pronouncing french words it's a, it's a peugeot is that french yeah, right? good luck with that okay <laughs> if i have any problems i'll come to you um but yeah a- anything you want to add
1: i think i'm good uh yeah yeah there's nothing i can think about right now
0: no. okay that's good um thank you very much I, I enjoyed this as much as i thought i would um, which is a lot by the way just to be clear um And yeah, let's definitely have you back. I think as I said, like the 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 videos that we did, I I love the videos and I love your your video style. Genuinely, I've told you this off off air, but I might as well tell you now as well. It's there's like a certain realness and freshness to it. So like the AI video that we mentioned right at the beginning, um, and even the videos that we we did for TMV, there's you have this ability of kind of using um, stock movie footage um and making points that are relevant to today i actually i i feel bad a little bit but i asked you to tone down the references to like contemporary muslim individuals and figures in in the series we made for tmv but you kind of don't hold any punches in other videos that you've made
1: no i mean you know it's like you know because you know even you know structures like uh let's say you know charities or these like prevent volas they they are colonial agents. This is what they are. Mm-hmm. But at the same time We need to understand that they're, they're victims of the system as well. This is why you know like as horrible as they are I cannot hate them. It's not like of course we need to hold them to account yeah. But at the same time uh, We also need to think of ways for us to improve as a community. You know, it's the whole thing of cancel culture Fair enough, we have like, uh, organizations like uh, making people redundant once they make sexist or racist statements. But what happens next? You know we have the standard apology, we swear it's never gonna happen again. But it's been 10 years of happening again and again and again. Why? Because the same people, they go to some other charities, some other TV stations, they do the same mistakes with some other people. And we don't have like a community or like a system, like uh, like a safety net for actually for people to grow from their mistakes. Understand like why what you said was harmful. What is the mindset behind this? And what, how should you say things and how you should, you, should, you should think to take, be like a true caliph, a khalifa for the community, a steward.
0: I've always said one thing, um, and I stand by this, especially in light of this kind of uh cancel culture and social media and whatever else whenever i've seen someone say or do things, something problematic that i know personally and this i would extend this to you as well i haven't called you out on anything but if i saw you say something problematic my first instinct would be to call you yep. or to message you mm-hmm. and and i feel like because of this guilty by association and trial by social media environment that we live in people are scared so like if i Am am seen to be like you know if, if I if I tweet you or whatever or, or we we seem to be friends suddenly people are like deleting their history and mm-hmm. and there's like you know there was one recent incident where someone um had had a, had a bit of a, a a social media um shit show surrounding them and one of their very good friends basically posted a picture online and was like. These are my day one guys. Anybody else doesn't exist in my life. Essentially disowning this guy mm-hmm. a little bit, right? And distancing himself. And and we're so quick to do that. And I'm sure I'm sure these guys had conversations behind closed doors and whatever else. But social media has become such a, a disease in that way. Like, um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to go off on a rant about this because I I, I do want to end this. But maybe next time we can, we can pick up on, on talking about social media and move on from there. Um, but I want to thank you for for coming in and doing this podcast, well, and for you. the videos that you've contributed in the past, and hopefully will continue to do going forward. Um, and keep up the good work. I I, I love um, I love all your work, to be honest, and your well, Facebook you. statuses. I love seeing the despair in your statuses as you describe the the, the process of writing this book and how painful it's been. Yes. Um, no, but I wish you all the best. Thank you very much, William. Well, thanks to you, So that was my conversation with William. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground in uh, in the hour or so that we were talking, and I think there's a lot more that we could have discussed. Um, but I, I definitely think that we should we should have a part two um, and 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 jump into to some of that stuff a little bit later on. Um, that's it. We're hopefully working on some uh, another video with him and potentially like a a, a series of videos coming out um, in the coming months. Let's see what happens with that. But thank you guys for listening. Um, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already to the Muslim Vibe Podcast. Give us a five-star rating if you're already subscribed. And tell your friends and, and family and whatever else. That's it. I'll see you guys uh, next week. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>